0: This was about as bizarre and as easy
1: as it gets.
0: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to
1: never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value, things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder Score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey, Go to valuebuilder.com. So usually when I do these interviews, I keep a little piece of paper beside me and I'll write down a little nugget that I want to include in my introduction. And usually by the end of the interview, I've got three or four kind of key nuggets that I want to sort of talk up in the introduction. My next guest, Tev Finger, I've got, I don't know, two dozen nuggets here, and I don't know where to start. So I going to butcher this intro, intro, but I'll do my best to uh, to share the story. So Ted Finger is the founder of Luxury Brands Partners and um, a key shareholder in that business, as well as a shareholder in a number of the businesses that he has funded. In particular, we get into, in this story, Orbe brand, uh, Brands, which is a hair care brand, which he built after a $6 million investment into a $441 million exit. Not a bad uh, little run for what was about 10 years worth of work. In this interview, uh, you'll hear a lot from Tev, a couple of things that I've written down here. Again, there are dozens of examples of of insights, but um, one of the ones I took away that I really liked was the idea of earning the right not to take a risk. I asked Tev about how much of his personal wealth he's got in luxury brands. I think you'd be surprised by the answer. Um, He talks about you know how he spends the money that he invests in a brand, in particular uh, his position that there are two things that make up a a successful investment: two things that have to be in place. And he talks about that. T- gives a definition of a convertible note and a pick, which I think is good for the technical investors on the uh, on the show. He has a real interesting philosophy around um, papering a deal so you've got control but never using it. And I think that is a fascinating, um, almost a uh, a a juxtaposition of two ideas that I think is, is really interesting. Uh, he talks about the the importance of branding and and using luxury brands and and you know companies like Neiman Marcus as a way to substantiate and and position a brand. Um, it's an interesting way he financed let let the buyers of his product finance the growth. Uh, there's a fascinating uh, you know idea in there about how to get from 20 to 80 million in sales and how important that gestation period is for a lot of companies. Um, you know, how to answer the question, do you want to be acquired? He's got some, you know, really interesting, strong views on the answer to that question. Uh, lots of great stuff. I'll let Tev Finger tell you the rest of the story. Ted Finger, welcome to Built to Cell Radio. Hi, how are you, John? I'm great. I'm great. So tell me a little bit about this company. We were talking a little bit offline about Luxury Brands. It's almost like an incubator. Take me me through this company. What's the model?
0: Yeah. So um, our company is called Luxury Brand Partners. I'm the founder and CEO. And um, the concept is that we were going to take, you know, create and ideate and fund ourselves as well as operate and then ultimately sell. So, if you think about that, it's kind of an unusual, um, you know, usually you might have a venture company or angel investors. We kind of take all of that out of it. We do everything on our own. So um, we even find, you know, we shop for, you know, a face of a brand. Um, and then, you know, we we kind of cobble that together with a business plan. Then we fund it. And then we sell it um, in the, on the street. And we, you know, find, find ways to make revenue. And then ultimately the goal is that we sell the brands for nice hefty exits. So we're kind of like an incubator as well as a, as a venture fund, as well as, um, operators. So that's, that is kind of unusual. And all of that, sorry, I should say is all within the beauty industry. So makeup, hair care, skincare, um, you know, anything to do with the beauty regimen.
1: Got it. And so who are the partners in luxury brands? There's quite a, quite a few. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, I won't name them all, but, um,
0: the, the, the main partners are my, you know, um, the chairman of the company, his is Moss Katie. He's actually a Canadian. And the the other one is uh, Acel, and she's from Europe. So she's a uh, amazing um, female entrepreneur, and, um, you know, she, she really helped back us in the, in the very early days. Um, so those are the kind of core. We then have a whole group of kind of operating partners that work with us, probably about six others in that group as well. And... Um, you know, it's a really, it's a really fantastic, well-rounded team. Everyone kind of does different stuff.
1: It sounds a little bit um, like a. a- an investment group where there's there's kind of operating partners and then limited partners who put money in uh, but but don't have operating roles. You do you have limited partners as well or is it just it's kind of more that, operating partners?
0: It's actually actually a great question. So we're we're everything we do is through LLCs. So our our main company which is Luxury Grant Partners, that's an LLC. And then all the subs underneath it are LLCs. We don't have limited partners. We we really just have um, three board members, which are equity holders that hold the largest amount of equity, which is me and the other two that I'd mentioned to you. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the structure. But then the, the, the operating partners, when I say operating, they really, they can, they can pinch hit They one can, can be a president of a brand. We can then sell a brand. They'll then move and become an international, uh, you know, head of international. So everyone kind of pin, we have uh, one that's a, a genius at marketing. So he'll work on all different brands. Um, We have a couple um, of our presidents that are, um, you know, um, phenomenal as well. So, you know, it's it's a really good mix, but we don't have it as an LPGP setup, although it probably feels like that a little bit.
1: Got it. Got it. Okay. well, great. So you recently built this this brand, Orbe. Maybe we can talk a little bit about Orbe. How did this come about?
0: Yeah, that was a um, that was a great. Well, I'll go back just in history just before that. Um, Sure. My partners and I started a brand called Bumble and Bumble. And that was a was, it was a hair salon in New York City, and the owner' his name was Michael Gordon. He wanted to start a product line, so we all kind of came together, and um, we funded it for about a million and a half. Um, um, one of the one of the main partners funded it for about a million and a half, and next thing you know, the brand um, kind of took off. And about twelve years later, we we sold it to Estee Lauder, and had a really a really good exit. So that was our first hair care exit brand that we had done um we had an I had a one year non-compete um so I, so I actually moved down to florida and just relaxed for a little while which is a perfect place to do that and then after the year was up came out and said all right um you know let's let's get the band back together because everyone kind of disbanded and went to that same investor that put the money into bumble bumble he put the money into um into orbay and then i went on a road show and raised uh, the rest of the money for the Orbe brand. So in total, we raised about $6 million, which was a lot more than we had raised for Bumble, but remember, it's 12 years later. So, you know, the game's kind of changed. Now, interestingly enough, that was in 2000.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna ask, why didn't you, I mean, presumably given the success of the Bumble and Bumble exit, why not self-fund it? Why not just do it yourself and and not bring in the outside investors?
0: It's funny, you know, what we did, we did put some money in um, the three kind of original founders Put in, I think, around six hundred thousand dollars to kind of get it going, and then after that first year, we needed some real money. And in order to compete with, uh, with basically with Bumble and Bumble, right, the company we had just built, which at that point was a hundred million in sales, it was just dominating, you know, the fine high-end hair salons. You know, I knew that we had to kind of get up to speed really quickly, and I didn't have the time. So if we self-funded, we'd be putting a lot of our own cash into it. And, you know, we had just had our first sales after 11 years. It's not like you want to put everything back into the kitty right away. So, you know, that was the kind of decision at that point. And we were happy to, to give away equity, but we had a really healthy valuation at that time because of our past success, which I think for entrepreneurs, it's kind of one of the exciting. I think it's always hard your first time, right? Because you have to have that proof of concept that you can do it. But once you've done that, you can start to push that, that valuation higher and obviously lose less equity. Right. In, in doing so. So um, we ended up giving away for the six million bucks about 20, 40, 60, 80, We gave away about 20 percent of the company, um,
1: which was which I think was That's really, pretty, you know, really good big valuation.
0: <laughs> healthy healthy valuation, we should say. Um, and, and,
1: and, 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 is, and what yeah. was it at the time? Was it just an idea on a piece of paper or, it was, or was it an
0: idea, idea on a piece of paper, literally with, with some sketches of bottles and stuff? But again, the, the investors incredible. were shrewd because they understood, you know, that it was really about our relationships and the team that we kind of bring that we brought to the table. So we, we started that brand. This is in uh, 2008. And as you can imagine, um, I'll never forget. I was working out in the gym and I, I remember George Bush, President Bush coming up on the TV saying, hey, we um, if we don't act and do this tarp thing, literally the country is going to shut down. And I remember thinking and the stock market started crashing. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. What a horrible time to start a luxury hair care brand where the shampoo (laughs) is 50 bucks and the conditioner is 50 bucks. Who in their right mind is going to spend a hundred dollars for a shampoo and conditioner? This is it. This is the end of the world. And so, as you know, you know, that's where entrepreneurs have to really reach in and really change your strategy and pivot a little bit. Um, And we had all kinds of issues. You know, part of that six million we had put into a regular bank account um, and I don't know if you know what an auction rate market is, but the auction I rate market. No. Um, sometimes if you want to get a little bit of a better interest rate in a bank, commercial, um, for your commercial account, they'll put you in a thing called auction rate. So Instead of getting half a percent interest, you can get like 1.2 and it's completely safe. Auction rate markets have been around for 30 years or 40 years and have never failed. Well, of course, they failed. <laughs> and we had you know, of our out of the six million, we were up to about three and two of the three got locked up in these auction rate markets during that whole crash in 2008. So it was a really tumultuous start and it was very difficult, but it really made us work 10 times harder and, 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 uh, you know, be very clever how we spend money. I can give you one quick example. I think for entrepreneurs is really, um, uh, helpful in that, in that time, so we had to really decide, how are we going to dispense and use our money? Because if the whole economy is down, maybe raising money is going to be really difficult. We weren't sure about you know the next $3 million we needed. Um, but second to that, we still wanted to come out swinging and build a brand that was competitive. So um, we threw some huge hairdresser events. And what I did was I went to Las Vegas because in two, towards 2009 um, or in middle of 2009, nobody was going to Las Vegas. I mean, it's it, the, the economy, in literally in Vegas, had crashed. Apartments weren't selling. No one was going to casinos because nobody had money. Like the, 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 the system kind of locked up. This is early 2009. So what I did was I went to Las Vegas and I negotiated with them. And it was so easy; it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I said, "Listen, I'm going to be here with 400 hairdressers. and throwing an event. I want free uh, drinks because they would—they were begging to get people to come into the casinos and, and gamble, right? Which is where they make their money. So." You know, I got them to throw in drinks. I got the hotel rates of eighty dollars at the Palms, as an example. Oh it was God. it was insane. I mean, we threw we threw what was probably equivalent to a to a two and a half million dollar event over the course of a week for a total cost of about two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. And the thing is, what you have to realize is, in, when things are really bad in the economy, there are ways to get a lot out of it. Right, your dollar can go a lot further. Your funds can go further. So. Instead of doing what every other company did in hair care at that point, which I had noticed, which was they were basically turtling, um, is a term I use, kind of going inside their shell and not spending money and not doing anything and no marketing. I don't know if you remember, nobody was advertising in that period. It was really a very dark time for us. Um, We did the opposite. We started spending money on advertising because I was getting full page ads in the trade magazines for one tenth of the price because nobody was advertising. So we used that dark time and that difficult time in in, in our country um, as a perfect time to get more bang for our buck and that helped really propel us because we started becoming this bright spot in the air industry when everything else was kind of depressing and, and not happening we were this kind of like flame that, that that kept it going so you know that's just a little little glimpse into some of the entrepreneurial thinking um, as, as I'm sure most of your listeners are very um, acutely aware of
1: yeah, well, no, I think it's it's a great reminder. And those were dark days for sure. Talk about Orbe and its business model. So you sold to uh, hairdressers. You didn't sell to grocery stores and Costco. You went through the hairdresser channel. Is that right?
0: Yeah, um, it was a, it was a hybrid model. We sold to hair salons. Um, there's just to so uh, give a point of reference. There's about three hundred thousand hair salons in the United States. Of those, we ended up by the time we sold, which was a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now. Um, it was about. 3000 customers that we had in that range. So, um, you know, it, it, it takes time to acquire each each salon is one door at a time that you have to open up. So, you know, the business model was sell to salons and at the same time sell to Neiman Marcus and some department stores. So, you know, uh, Neiman Marcus, uh, space NK, um, which is out, uh, from London, but also in the U S, um, and the Bloomingdale's. So we had a high end department stores where we would anchor the luxury side, and then salons. And that was our product. So we didn't sell to Costco and, uh, you know, Sally's Beauty Supply and places like that where you would find kind of less expensive products. So we, we definitely it. wanted to distinguish ourselves as a Rolls-Royce of hair care. And I think we did a really good job of that. It just was a little difficult in the beginning because nobody wanted to buy a Rolls-Royce of hair care in the very, very beginning. So that's where, <laughs> <we had> to, <laughs> that's where we had to retool a little bit. And what we actually did to compensate for that is we, had, we came out with our Rolls-Royce line, then realized it was very expensive. So, we created kind of a sub line of about five pieces, which were way lower price point and way lower margin. Kind of like think of it like a loss leader to kind of get us in the door. And salons would take that. And interestingly enough, they would take the lower expense stuff. And once they were in the door for a month or two, they would tend to take on the rest of the line. And Hmm. people actually bought them. If someone decides they're going to buy a Rolls Royce, they're generally not going to try and cheap out and buy the lowest. An expensive model. It's an interesting psychology. So, um, when you're dealing with that kind of top top echelon of a customer who's got you know more money to spend, you know you almost they kind of sometimes want to buy the more expensive product. That's what we learned from that
1: process. Interesting. Talk about cash flow here. Um, you're buying. I mean, are you contract manufacturing the product or, like, do you own manufacturing facilities? Like, how are, what's the cash flow like? Are you, I'm yeah, particularly um, interested because hair salons are probably really slow payers, if, if I had to guess.
0: Uh, it interesting you say that. So, um, they are. They're notorious for slow or not paying. So, so what we, um, what we had done is did everything by credit card. We kind of demanded that you, you kind of have to use credit card and we're not going to do any terms. Um, and we our, our angle on that was, look, you're getting 30-day terms on your credit card. And you know what? If you can't make a payment, you just pay them interest, and you can have 60 days or 90 days. I know it sounds kind of simple, but that actually was a workaround that worked really well. and um, got a, I, find you know, yeah, you know, I find that fascinating. Yeah. That's and incredible. That, and, it's, you know, entrepreneurs, it's interesting. It's, a lot of times, it's how you phrase and package things that can kind of get you over these hurdles that, that come up, right? Um, so so that's how we kind of, a, you know, got past that, the 30-day thing. We,
1: we also... What would, an average, yep. Tim, what would an average order size be of a typical salon? Not, not the highest <laughs> one, not the lowest one, but average. Yeah,
0: yeah. an average order uh, of Orbe would be about $1,500 a month at wholesale, which means they sell it for 3000 at retail. So they make, if they buy $1,500, they're going to make 1500 So it's actually really, it's actually the most profitable part of a salon business. Most salons make around the good ones, make between 5 to 10% profit in, for the year on everything, and the biggest generator of that profit in their salon, because the margins are good, is the actual product, right? Which is, they're making, you know, 100% on whatever they buy. So, that's how that works. Uh, back to the other thing you had said before about, you know, from the contract manufacturing and all of that, mm-hmm. um, in order to get cash flow, because that, to your point, um, cash flow is everything, right? When you're growing a business. So, the way we did it was we kind of off, we, we, we shoot everything out, outside of us and don't, try not to own it. So, like as the warehouses, we don't use our own warehouse, we use a public warehouse, right? And there were three of those kind of strategically located around the country so that if you place an order for ground, you would get it within three days, um, which is kind of a little bit on the slow side. Distributors, which is the other route model that people use, which obviously we didn't use distributors, that was a huge piece. We cut distributors out of the model. And we just went direct to salons. Um, so when you use a distributor, you might get the product in 24 hours. With us, it took three days. We it wasn't ideal, but it but it helped us. You know, we didn't have to pay distributors and lose half of the margin. Uh, the other thing we did was when it comes to manufacturing, we didn't buy our our um, ingredient. Um, what do you call the formulas? Um, we didn't buy the formulas, we subbed everything out, but we worked intensely with these contract manufacturers and we guided them on, this is what we needed to do, it has to do this and this and this. And actually that's where the, the person, Orbe, which is actually a hairdresser, it's a person, um, one of our partners at the time, now you know, they've moved on now, we've sold the company, but um, Orbe, the person would really help us and said, he was a hairdresser, would help us with the um, labs kind of directing them on what it is we needed. And that was very, very helpful. And he was—he was really a master when it came to understanding the product side. So everyone played a role and a function um, in in creating in creating the brand.
1: I find it just fascinating. So, so you're starting these brands with a view to to selling them, obviously. How, how big did you get Orbe before you decided it was time to exit?
0: That's a great question. It's, it's a question we get quite often, which is, you know, when you start a brand, you don't you operate the brand as though you're going to own it forever because it it makes you run a better brand. Um, So that's how we kind of look at it. Our mentality is let's build a phenomenal business. And we just know that if we do a great job of building a phenomenal business, someone's going to come along and pay a lot of money for that more than maybe a normal company would get. Um, And that's where the, you know, you get the multiples on EBITDA or multiples on valuation. So, you know, our industry has, you know, a range of multiples. Um, you know, we have all kinds of analysis on that. But um for us, you know, it's it's really about driving a huge amount of EBITDA. So as an example for Orbe, um, we were at about a thirty-three percent NOP net operating profit, um, on about ninety million dollars. Um, so, you know, that's that's a very uh ninety million in revenue and you know uh thirty-three percent net operating profit. That's a really healthy um, you know, margin and, and uh, profit, you know, uh, and, and the business is spitting out cash every year, right? It's Printing out like 20 something million dollars of, of cash that you can kind of reinvest in the business. So interestingly enough, the entire eight year journey from beginning to end, it took eight years on the Orbe uh, brand. We never once took money out from profit for ourselves. The only money we ever distributed was uh, tax distribution to cover the taxes for the members. But, and it, so it shows you, you know, when you have something good, you can take money out, but you're going to slow down your growth. And it's really important in, in certain, in some um, field, um sectors, it is important to kind of get there very quickly. Because if you take too long to get there, someone else can come and, and kind of push you out of the way. So um, we reinvested every penny
1: after that 6 million. I mean, how do you know how fast to push? Because, I mean, some of these brands, Estee Lauder, some of these very high-end established brands have been around for generations, if not centuries. Yeah. Um, yeah. So why, why do you think it's important to move so quickly? Because, well, first of all, the great news is that
0: news, Newsflash, the, uh, these huge conglomerates, think of them as big, huge dinosaurs, They're like a brontosaurus, right? Um, and when you're small in a startup, they don't even notice you. You're, you're not even on the radar. So they, they start to notice you when you get to about $20 million you know, um, and and I'm talking about this is specifically hair care at this point, or maybe even a little bit of makeup at that point. And at that point that when they notice you, that's where you have to turn the afterburners on because you need to get from 20 to 80 within, you know, three or four years, because they're going to start becoming competitive. They're going to start looking, their generals are going to look at their troops and say, all right, you know, push back on them in that location, push back there. So, you know, it's, you kind of want to, Get to the 20, you're going to be undetected. Once you get to that $20 million in revenue, that's where you actually really want to push hard. And it's it's been like that every brand we've we've had. We had a makeup brand that we exited actually. So um, Orbe technically was in December, was when the sale happened of uh, 2017. And then in 2016 in December, we exited a makeup brand called Becca and we actually sold that brand to Estee Lauder. And um, that one was published, I think in North of $200 million, uh, you know, so I'm not, I'm not giving any weight. I mean, Trade Secrets has published a north of $200 million exit. And that was a brand that we actually had taken on three and a half years prior. They were losing $3 million a year and doing $4 million in revenue. And they were mostly found in drugstores. So that was what I would call an absolute disaster. We put in a new management, put in a president. His name's Bob Baker, phenomenal president. He was a good friend of mine at the time. We put him in there. We put in about six million dollars of investment into this company. Now this is a company that'd been around for twelve years. What did you buy it from? Uh, we we actually kind of absorbed it. So it was like, we'll take it over. We'd actually didn't even buy it. We'll we'll take it over, we'll leave some of the original founders with their equity and we'll make this we'll make we'll turn this into something. So there, there never really was really an acquisition. It was kind of we'll, we'll, we'll lower some of the equity of its existing members and then we'll invest money and run this thing. And then everybody hopefully will make money. And, and that's exactly what happened. And, uh, three and a half years later, we sold it, you know, the brand it was a 200 plus exit million dollar exit. And it was a, uh, it was a really great example of, you know, sometimes you need the right team inside of there and you've got to have that funding, right? So businesses are difficult in that you can have the best team in the world, but you don't have funding. It's going to be really difficult, and if you have funding and you don't have a great team, that could also be really difficult. So having those two, it's a one-two punch. I think is honestly, it's a must, you um, know, in, in, in our opinion, to do what we do.
1: Because you injected six million dollars in both Orbe as well. Is there any is it coincidence that six million dollars was was the number, or is there something magic about that amount of, uh, of sort of injection yeah, capital in the early stages? That's, that's a really good question. I think.
0: Look, I wouldn't I wouldn't know that unless you know, from our past experiences, but it really does seem like $6 million um, gets, gets you what you need in that field. However, I will tell you, we have some new brands in our state, but not all, you know, all brands start at zero. So right now at uh, Luxury Brand Partners, we've got um, about six brands currently. And of the six brands, only one of them is over 20 million in sales. And, and uh, you know, that's only been in business two and a half years. That's another hair care brand. So that's on its trajectory, doing its thing. We're reinvesting all the money. Um, we probably put in 10 million into that brand. So um, what I'm noticing is as time goes on, the amount of money you need grows substantially. And it actually grows. It's growing faster than, than you know, infl- certainly inflation, right? So if four or five years ago, it was the 6 million number. And 14 years ago, it was the, the 1.5 million number. Today, it's looking like 10 million. So a lot of the brands that are in our kind of um, group now are about 10 million. Now, I should say we've also changed some of our strategies. So we're not only selling to hair salons now. Now we sell to, uh, you know, Sephora and Ulta and some of the other, um, you know, different retailers. So because the whole world's changing, right? Um, Amazon has, has Amazon and the Internet together have worked wonderfully to kind of disrupt, you know, retail. So it's making everybody work harder and think differently and operate differently. So, you know, that direct model that we used before, now we use a hybrid model in one of our hair brands where we use distributors and we use a direct force. So, as it as the game changes, so do so do the um, so, so does the strategy.
1: Give me the pie chart. So you invest $10 million in a brand. What are the big slices of the pie chart? Like where's that money going?
0: Great great question. Um obviously when you kind of first place your order you know you're looking at about a million and a half right off the bat right because you, the minimum runs are quite substantial if you want to get the good margin price um the first year there's no product it's building the product so it's all um you know human resource right so it's uh the salaries and the typical team can be about 15 to 20 people that work on it from the art design people, the, the marketing people, the president of the brand. Um, you don't really have many sales people involved, but you have one head of sales kind of helping to strategize on what it's going to look like. So you got a quite a big, a robust team of 20 people, which is unusual. A normal startup, um, like when we started Fumble was three of us and then we added people as we went. But um, today the way we do, we want to move faster. So we don't mind spending more money to move faster because, you know, Time is money and money is time. So um, people are probably the biggest expenditure out of that pie because it's not just the first year. I should also say that we don't put the money in just to get us through year one, right? The whole business plan is predicated on how much money do we need to get us to break even so we don't need more money. And then the business will self-invest at that point. So that takes about three years, that process. So that 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 10000000 million, you're burning $3.3 million a year. That's the way to kind of look at it. Um, and then as you start getting some phenomenal growth, you actually need more money to fund those orders. So it's kind of vicious, good, vicious cycle that hits you. And then you, you know, because the margins are so, are so good, you get to a certain point where it then makes enough profit to, kind of, to, to catch you up and you don't need more money.
1: So in the case of War Bay, you invested $6 million or, or you and your investment syndicate invested $6 million in the beginning. Did you get to the point of self-funding the rest or did you have to go to do another round? Great question. So we, we
0: put in the six and that lasted actually for quite a time. It lasted about five years. And at the fifth year, we actually took a loan from luxury brand partners, our mother, kind of the mother company, which is um, where where I'm, where I reside most of the time. We took a loan for three and a half million dollars at that point um, and reorganized a little bit. And that was kind of a, that was a lot of firepower to add on. And it really helped, um, the trajectory kind of explodes after
1: that. It sounds like that's what got you from the twenty to the ninety.
0: That yeah. So uh, at that point, three and a half years ago, we were probably at about yeah about twenty five exactly. And now that three and a half extra just was the was the extra fuel to kind of push you. We without it we probably would have got to <clears throat> sorry without it we probably would have got to seventy five maybe. So with that extra three and a half, it gets you to ninety. But remember multiples are phenomenal right so the difference between the delta between seventy five and ninety is what fifteen million but you're getting fifteen million times uh you know potentially eight x right so it's very it's a really good investment to invest that three and a half million once you once you're you have a successful business so I would say right. entrepreneurs, don't don't be scared to take an investment on if you think the yield from it can Can you know take a three and a half million dollar investment if you think you can get thirty
1: five million for it? You know, a few
0: years right. So let
1: yeah, let's back into the math though. So so here's here's what I know. Uh, Well, I I'm I'm fairly sure (laughs) you don't have to comment, but I'm fairly sure because of what I've seen in the press and the media that the sale price of orbay was around 400 four, i think I, I saw 441 441 million dollars if the profitability of the company which you said was it was generating gross mar- gross revenue of around 90 million even a margins of about 30 percent so ballpark it's 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 in and around turning out 30 million dollars in net operating profit yeah, probably
0: right around 28 29 right in that range exactly 28
1: 29 you sold for 441 I'm not great at math, but it looks like a bit better than a 10 multiple, maybe more like a 13 or 14. Um, Yeah, exactly.
0: Correct.
1: Got it. So so that's that's impressive. So
0: to your to your point, John, once you once you kind of understand the economics of it, it's why it's not hard to make a three and a half million dollar investment when you kind of know you're going to get those those
1: returns. Right. So that's 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 how you get there. So you, you can you can look at it and say, well, if we can get from fifty to fifty million in revenue to eighty million in revenue, that's thirty million. We're gonna net um, uh, nine million on the thirty. So now we've got nine times I don't know, thirteen or fourteen multiple. So it's it's like a hundred million bucks and you're gonna invest right. three and a half to get there.
0: Right. But that's not thanks. that actually it really kind of uh, it really works out. Now again, that's not you know, I'm always very um, aware that you know some of the listeners might be in a different industry where, where you don't get those multiples, so that might not make sense but but if, the, if if you get those types of multiples in your industry like I know tech is very good, um, beauty uh, you know, um, products are, are generally pretty good, sometimes food can be good depending on what type, but there are industries you know textiles you know the margins are going to be lower, so that might not apply
1: but it's super helpful to know the kind of the way you think about it in your own mind. one of the things that i'm I'm sort of uh, I'm fascinated by, frankly, is, is it sounds like there's a lot of uh, hands in the cookie jar. So there's luxury brands partners where you're a shareholder, but there's other shareholders. And then there it, it appears to be shareholders at the brand level. So, yeah, when you, correct. At, so when you at luxury brand partners decide to take a give a loan to one of your brands of three and a half million dollars, um, like, how do you think through the risk of that? Is you is that you personally pull, like like reaching into your pocket and writing a personal check, the, what ostensibly is a personal check to the brand, or are your partners all sharing in that risk? Like, help me think through the the the, the capital structure, if you will, and, and how you would make a decision to loan a brand that kind of money.
0: So, what happens in the case of Orbe? We we raised. Um, at luxury brand partners, we raised money to start that company. So, you know, um, we took some of our funds from that company and, you know, made that three and a half million dollar loan to, to the sub. Um, in that case, it was a very, what I call a very friendly loan. It was a, uh, you know, extremely low interest and it really was to kind of just help the brand. So, um, because we were on both sides of that, meaning we, I had, you know, a lot of the team had equity, on. Um, Luxury Brand Partners, as well as Orbe, it was kind of like a friendly loan. Um, and there were a few people that were members just on the Orbe side, and they made out really well because it was like basically getting almost sure. free money, right? Um, so so that was that. In in the other cases, which is more often the case, so you're um, astutely recognized that there's, there's a plethora of people that are in a brand that can join that are not a part of the mother company, right? Um, so as an example, um, we have a brand called IGK and we've got these four incredible artists. And this is a brand that's sold in Sephora. It's a care brand. It's just fast up and coming. It's sales in its first year did 12 million, which we're ecstatic about and looks like we'll do about 20 um, this year, 2018. And, you know, it's just, it's a really fun, more millennial driven hair brand, not as expensive as Orbe. It's, you know, it's a fun brand, you know, that, that brand, um, we started off with a business plan that called for six, but as we started realizing that Sephora has bigger marketing needs and a brand needs more money to be successful in there, we realized we need more money. So what we did was we extended loans to the company and it, it was almost like a uh, like a almost like a convertible note with a pick but But we really don't want to convert the notes i don 't know if that makes sense because we don't want to dilute the the reason that we don't just buy equity in the company is we really don't want to dilute the um, the founders because it'll it'll uh, you know it'll take some steam out of out of their ship, especially if they're doing a great job and you're growing so quick, right? So these are the decisions you have to kind of make, and and if a brand is not doing great. And the founders are mediocre. And they're only you know contributing so much. Yeah. Then then we would look at that and say, maybe we're just going to take equity now. But we've never done that. We've always extended these kind of very friendly loan terms. Um, the loan that we the loans we do now are much more aggressive than they were for the Orbe, which was literally nothing. It was like one percent or something. It was very small. The loan now are they are about eight percent, and you know they just kind of accrue as this balance. And the idea is that when the brand starts making cash flow which they always end up doing we then would pay down the loans and never have to dilute and everyone loves that you know the brand the founders love that of the the individual LLCs we love it because we want to see them have big exits you know our one of the things that we've become known for when it comes to artists of brands whether it be makeup artists or hairdress you know hairdressers that have great concepts and ideas that we make we make our partners a lot of money and and that's a good there's no better calling card in an industry than that um So that's how that kind of loan mechanism works. We've never yet converted a loan to equity. That hasn't happened to this day. So hopefully it'll keep working and we'll just, you know, keep growing and then getting the money paid back.
1: Excellent. And can you, for for folks who may not be familiar with the concept of a convertible note, can you just in layman's terms, describe that for folks?
0: Sure. So, you know, convertible note is basically saying, look, I'm going to lend you a hundred, I'm going to put a hundred dollars into your business um, and in you know a year when you make your next raise, whatever the valuation of that raise is, I'll convert at that point. And say I put 100 bucks in, and the valuation is a thousand bucks, I'll get 10% of the company at that point. That's kind of the standard way that a convertible note works. Obviously, you can put a lot of um, tails onto that. You can say, well, I'll put in 100 bucks, but in in uh, whenever you raise that money, no matter what you raise it at. I'm going to max out at a $200 valuation and I'm only and I'm putting in a hundred bucks, which means you're essentially going to get 50% of the company at that point. So you can put tails on those convertible notes. What we kind of do is an interesting hybrid. It's a loan to the company that if the loan doesn't get paid back in three or four years, um, we can then convert it to equity. And we come up with instead of, because we're not going to do a raise like a convertible note. So what we do is we say, we're going to just convert it at a, multiple of sales um, times x and that's what the valuation is and then we'll convert this loan into it but like i said we've never actually done it because we don't want to do that but but that's how the documents are written
1: but you've got that legal right to do it if you ever had to
0: yeah yeah and I, i think it's very important to note as well having contracts and documents that give you tons of power and control are extremely important but just as important is to actually try not to use those controls and power i don't know if that makes sense um you know it 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 builds a camaraderie and an understanding of your partners that wow they could have diluted us but they didn't um you know um we also in our business plans once we raise the six million which is usually our target if we have to go over the six million they don't really know that there's this loan facility thing that we do they expect a the dilution right their partners is oh we're gonna have to raise more money we're gonna have to lose and we actually said, well, actually, let's do it this way. Let's loan money, and we explain how it works. So they're very grateful for that, but you want to make sure that your documents are you know, written really well, that you're protected.
1: And you referenced a PIC. Maybe you can describe that as well.
0: The PIC is kind of just like a, there's this compounding interest that happens. PIC's a little more, um, um, what's the right word? It's a little more devastating, I think, to the, to the founders, where you've got that 8%, but it's compounding on top of each other. And then it converts at at a at a target, and you know um, it's sometimes very hard. If time goes too long, it can be very difficult to catch up to the pick. And it's a way that a lot of private equity companies end up owning a lot of companies by using these kind of aggressive picks.
1: Tab, one of the questions that I I, I mean, your life sounds. Um... You sound like the Richard Branson, frankly, of hair care products. <laughs> you sound like you're, <laughs> you're jetting around the world, building these incredible brands. In a few years, they go from you know a couple million. to it, it sounds wonderful. And I think people listening will probably be like, how do I get Teb's job? <laughs> um, what proportion? Uh, and this is a very personal question. And you can tell me to go to hell if you want to. But what proportion of your personal wealth have you got tied up? In luxury brands, and the reason I'm asking—and again, you can tell me to go to hell later uh, or in a moment—but the reason I'm asking is, is I wonder how vested you are, um, and how how sort of all in are you in luxury brand partners versus almost thinking of it as sort of using other people's mind?
0: Oh, great question. Um, the, the the easy answer is zero. So, and and the reason for that is the value that an entrepreneur has when they have multiple successes behind them is they, they shouldn't need to put their money in. They, they, and it's, and you want to raise lots of money anyway. So you shouldn't, you've earned the right to not have to take that huge risk. If you have lots of successes behind you, understanding in the very beginning, like in Orbe, we did have to put some money in and and uh, you know, that's just the way it is because you have to kind of, you know, one success wasn't enough as an example, right? Having Bumble behind us. But as you start going and having more and more and more and more, you—it's incredible the amount of capital that starts coming your way that is not expensive um, because they want a piece of that big pie. They—they they get it. They're like, you know, let's—this is someone that's worth investing in, and this is a group that's worth investing in because we get a lot of upside and a lot of kick. So that's the—that's kind of the easy answer. So it's—it's a, it's a kind of a nice scenario to not have to put the money in and have other people that are there to do it. With all of that said, for the first time in a long time we are doing another round at our parent company because we need a little more cash to keep some of these brands going till the till the next exit happens and um i'm actually going to be putting in some money for the first time so you know i'm not opposed to putting money in by any means and i'm actually excited to, to write a check this time since uh, i'm looking forward it. As, as a percentage of net worth it's, it's peanuts but but it's meaningful you know to uh to 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 put some money into the company, because we need a little bit of extra cash right now.
1: And how do you look across the table from investors? And again, I'm thinking first-time entrepreneurs raising their first amount of money may not have this luxury, but, but maybe they've got an exit under their table, or, or they, they've built something successful, and so they've got a little bit more credibility. How do you look across the table from investors and say, when they ask the question, well, how much, how much do you have in this deal, Tab?" And, 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 and you answer, well, nothing. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> not- <laughs>
0: My answer is always nothing. However, if you, if that was a very important prerequisite and you needed me to, I would, it's not that I wouldn't, it's just that I haven't needed to. And if you find the right partners that, that, that meet your experience, right. And your success, you know, they kind of realize that, so what am I going to do? I'm going to make him put in a million bucks. He's already obviously committed because look at the track record and, you know, look what these guys do and and, and ladies look, look what this team does. So, so I think, you know, it's not a difficult conversation, again, once you have those successes. In the beginning, you do have to. And I got to tell you, when I invest, you know, I invest outside of, you know, as an investor, I invest in other businesses as well. And the key thing I'm always looking at is if it's a first time entrepreneur, then heck, yeah, they got to put some money in. I got to know that they're in, it. unless it's someone I know personally really, really well. And I know the, the story and the background and who they are. You know, maybe I would for, forgo on that a little bit, but, but I definitely think in your first one or two startups, you know, with, you know, even with one success behind you, you're going to have to put some money in, but that should get easier and easier. And eventually, you know, you shouldn't have to put a lot. And there's other entrepreneurs too, John, just to, you know, kind of balance it on the other side. I know a lot of entrepreneurs that don't want any money. They want a hundred percent of the company. And that's one thing that you have to get, you know, it's a choice you have to make, right? I don't, I've never needed to own the whole company. Um, it's just a, you know, I'm happy to, you know, to own maybe 25 or 30% when it's all said and done or 40%, right? Like those numbers are okay. I mean, when I make investments in other companies, I can own a minor, minority share as an example, as long as all the protections are there.
1: Great thoughts. Great thoughts. So let's go into the Orbe uh, exit and finish up with that. So, um, so again, back to you, you're at, I think you 90 million, very profitable, um, What was the trigger that made you decide that now was the time to sell? It's
0: interesting. I think it's different for every brand. In that brand, we had partnered with um, a company called Goldwell, which is a hair color company, for like the last three or four years. And basically, we would do shows together. They would be the color, and we would be the wet uh, hair product. And so it was a really great synergy. We would recommend each other to each other's clients.
1: Um,
0: Well, the parent company, Cow, which is a Japanese company, phenomenal company um, really well run and and just an amazing team. They, they, you know, I guess the Goldwell team basically said, look, it'd be great if we could buy this company because it's worked so well together. So literally, um, that's what they did. So, so we never actually put it on the market or shopped it around, which is generally, generally the way you would do it. You would hire bankers and then they would go out and shop the deal to all of the conglomerates. This was unique. This was kind of a deal that kind of came to us. And, you know, the the reality is, like I said in the beginning, you build a brand, trying to build the best brand, knowing if you do a great job, someone's going to come and knock on your door and buy it. And that's literally what happened.
1: In in this case, Goldwell came to you to want to acquire you, or was it the parent company?
0: Well, Goldwell was kind of a a hair color company that that we partnered with to recommend each other. So they must have gone and said to their parent company, hey, we should buy these guys. This would be a great strategic move. So that's how it kind of happened.
1: And the parent company, is cow like the animal? Maybe I'm not hearing that correctly. Uh,
0: cow is um, it's, uh, it's a Japanese, uh, huge Japanese conglomerate. I think it's uh, K-A-O. They, got uh, it. They, they bought a brand called Molton Brown, which was a really great um, product company about maybe a decade ago. So they've they got some big acquisitions. They're a very, very, um, you know, um, well kind of perceived company.
1: And so, walk us through again, for folks listening who maybe have never gone through an exit before, it's it's a little bit of a black hole, maybe a bit of a mystery. so so, how did they approach you? Was it over a cocktail at an industry event, or did they formally approach you with a letter of intent? like what how, how did that look? Well, the, in the very
0: beginning, it was the president of um of Goldwell saying, "You know, be great if maybe we you know would you guys ever be open to getting acquired?" And I think any entrepreneur, if you answer that question, no, I don't think you're an entrepreneur, <laughs> I just don't, because uh, uh, by default, right, an entrepreneur wants to get make the most amount of money, they're business people, and they should be driving to get the highest price, and you always want to hear what someone wants to pay. I mean, it's just you should always hear it, you know, so we we basically said, yeah, we're always, you know, interested to hear from you guys, and, and then that kind of, that conversation took some time. We said, we're not dying to sell our company right now, but we'd, we'd be very open to listening, and then that conversation goes another year. And then before you know it, you do get a um, kind of call from them that says, look, we'd like to actually present you a formal offer. Are you guys OK with that? Of course we're OK with that. Let's, let's hear it. You get a term sheet and an offer and you kind of take it from there. And then that starts a very long negotiation. I mean, it's, from the day that you kind of get that offer, um, in this case, was probably seven months from the day we got the offer to actually closing. Because, you know, you've got legal teams and it's just a plethora of stuff that has to be taken care of. But, um, you know, but the process was fairly easy in that case. In in the makeup brand that we have, that one we used the bank and we went out to the market and said, hey, we're ready to sell that brand. Um, because, to be quite honest with you, we wanted to use the cash flow from that to grow our new roster of younger brands. So that was that was one where we said, oh, we, we want to sell now, even though we know we can get more money for it later on. But when you've got five brands that are hungry for cash in the beginning stage, it was more important to, gen- to sell the brand. And, and, and that worked out really well because there was a buyer for it.
1: Got it. In the case of Bay, it through that seven months, how are you keeping, I mean, to use a fishing, fishing analogy, keeping the f- fish on the hook? I mean, that's a long time to decide to sort of go back and forth. Were there, were there times where you felt like the deal was falling apart?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's very, very interesting. We we operate the business and try to ignore the fact that there's this deal happening on the side. And um, because, you know, as entrepreneurs, it could absolutely fall apart and we still want to keep growing our business and doing great. So, so you kind of in one, you have two minds and in one mind you're saying to yourself, operate the business, pretend the deal is not going to happen and try tell as few people as you can internally. On the other side, you do everything you can to make the deal happen. There were many times, that I thought the deal wasn't going to happen. None of them to do with Cal, the company. Just internal things that would come up, and you know we weren't sure if we could get everybody across the finish line. And we we like to do things. You know, yes, of course you have contracts. Again, I kind of refer that having control and power, but not abusing it and always using it. So we wanted to have every member of our company, all the investors and all the o- operators of Orbay, we wanted everyone to want to do the deal and sign off, even though we could have dragged if they had one person that didn't want to do it, we could have dragged them we We don't like to do things like that um, and, obviously- and, and so what
1: what sort of resistance did you get um internally yeah like why would why would somebody yeah, i think like- I think
0: some people said to themselves, "Look, you know maybe we can get a billion dollars and let's keep growing this thing right You had a couple of people that were on that fence. you had a couple of people that said you know um let's try dragging on a little bit longer because we're gonna get a big kick at the end of the year in the holiday season, right, in December. And that'll really kind of set us up for the next year's sale. So you had that. You had, um, we had a, um, like a internal, um, like a one legal matter that we had to clear up. And that took some time in negotiating to get that done. So, you know, it was kind of like a mix of everything that, you know, from one minute we look at it. And of course, you know, it was interesting too. The entire time you're looking at the market thinking, we hope the market holds up because that could really turn off any buyer, you know, if you've just got this plunge in the market. Ironically, it's just gone up and up and up and up since then. So it's kind of interesting. You know, you can never really time. I don't think you can ever really time a market. A little bit of it's luck.
1: And how was your headspace through this? I mean, were you firmly in the camp of, no, this is a great offer. Let's do it. Or were you being swayed by these other investors and partners who thought maybe you should hold out?
0: I definitely thought, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, you get a big number like that, you know, yeah, you could get 500, you could get 600, you could try and get smart, but you could lose a deal as well. And I think it's it's always better to, look, we're in the business of investing 6 million and selling for 400. We're not in the business of taking $400 million brands and trying to make 6 or 500 million, right? So that's that's not our, our core competency. Our core competency is startups from scratch. So I was very comfortable. Sense. I was very comfortable in that zone, um, as opposed. I did think there were times where, I, you know, I think as entrepreneurs, you have to have your own coping mechanisms. Whether you work out or you do yoga or, you, you know, uh, go out with friends and have a drink, whatever your mechanism is to deal with that stress, I think is very important. But 2017 was really a stressful year because we were operating a business with this with this big unknown of where where are we going to be in in the you know, uh, you know, six months from now. So, you know, that that kind of sits on your shoulder like a weight. So it was a, it was like a weight came off when when we finally signed the deal. More important than the money, it was just this, this burden
1: came off of our shoulders. So Cal made the first move in terms of valuation. Had had you talked valuation at all, or, or what the minimum no. number you needed to?
0: No, but our so our, they made the,
1: they made the first move.
0: Yeah, our industry is pretty. I mean, if you you know you can look at analysis, you can see what all the brands kind of sell for. So there's a range
1: got it and and so how how much of it like was there a lot of of back and forth on on price or like where was the big negotiation point was it more in deal terms
0: actually actually um yeah there was there was no negotiation on price they made a really fair offer we accepted and you know i think both sides were amazing nobody nickel and dimed each other either um the the real, the, the, the most tricky part, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call it negotiation. It was really the, the mapping of which people, because we had some shared services between Luxury Ram Partners mm. and Orbe. So it was which, what, what, which of those people do you actually need because they have their own huge you know accounting departments and stuff. So do they need any of our accounting people? Do they not need any? If they don't need any of them and we sell Orbe, we're a little bit over-indexed, so we have to get rid of a few people. So really it wasn't a negotiation as much as it was a puzzle that we had to kind of figure out together. And they were, again, I got to tell you, they were phenomenal. They really were. I have a lot of respect for that company.
1: That's amazing. Um, You've been through a lot of deals and, and you've been on, it sounds like the buy side and the sell side. So it's, I asked this question and I'm hoping that you can wear both hats and think back in your history and answer, you know, what is the biggest gotcha, the biggest trick that buyers use? Clearly, it doesn't sound like Cal use any of these, but I'm sure you've seen them. And, and how can we outfit or arm entrepreneurs to avoid succumbing to the big tricks, the big gotchas that buyers use to? Yeah.
0: Now that's a phenomenal question um we got burned on when we were selling bumble um and and, and honestly it was simply because of um lack of experience and understanding. that you don't just you know you don't just get to a, you don't have all this knowledge you have to you have to learn and a lot of the times as an entrepreneur in fact i would say most of the time you learn from mistakes that's just you know I think great entrepreneurs are the types of people that can make a mistake, get right back on the horse. And it's that old thing. You try not to make a mistake twice. That's really important because that's just going to keep holding you back. So um, for us, when we sold Bumble, we kind of sold it in two parts. And in one of the parts, there was a, there was a linkage in, in what the – there was an earnout period. And there was a linkage to um, a net, net operating profit having to be 28%. And at the time, we were 16 and if it, we didn't achieve 28%, um, it had a big effect, downdraft effect on our on our final buyout number. So, um, you know, I'd be very careful when when it, sometimes if you sell a company, you might sell 50% up front and then there'll be an earnout period. I'd be very careful in trying to, you know, give away that you're going to make huge amounts of profit as a percentage. Try do them more off of revenue because it's a little easier to control.
1: Great tip. In your case, what, what made you think you'd go from sixteen to twenty-eight percent? What was your thinking there? You know, we we that was the
0: naive part in thinking that we would just easily get there. And you know, as we got closer to the end, we realized, oh wow, we gotta we gotta we gotta start making product for a little bit less and, and squeezing our margins down a little bit. So it's just naive. It was just a mis, you know miscalculation. On our
1: got it. Team. Got it. So the tip there is is if you have to deal with an earnout tie it to top line revenue, which is something you can control more easily than, than bottom line profit.
0: Yeah, be very, be very careful. To, and look, if you're going to tie into a profit, don't tie into like double, don't tie into double what your current currently
1: <laughs> right. because
0: it might sound great, but it's making your life very difficult. And I mean,
1: you know? like how much money do you think you left on the table in that or now?
0: No, I don't know. Um, definitely a lot of money, um, but I'm not sure, I, would, I wouldn't know. You know, it's funny, what you try and do as well is you, You make the mistake, you don't want to, and I think it's really important, energy level is, you know, how much energy you use and have is very important. And, um, you know, if if you kind of make a mistake and you get mired down, you beat yourself up, that's not a good thing because entrepreneurs, you know, you're, you got to motivate your team. You've got to, you got to get investors excited about it and you can't do it if you're completely depressed and have low energy. So I think it's really important that when you do make a mistake, say, all right, got it. I know I left money on the table, won't ever happen again, and you move forward. And I think that's the way that I'm kind of wired rather than kind of trying to go back and think, because it's going to be a painful process if, if you kind of go, go You're
1: through You're going to need a drink after this interview. You'll be like, man, that Warlow guy was really a drag. <laughs> exactly.
0: I really, I honestly look at it and said this was a great learning experience and I'll just never, you know, I'll know in the future, never to do
1: that. Tim, how do you, I mean, I got to ask because it, I just get this energy coming through the line. I get I just a sense of positivity and a sense of glass three quarters full sunny attitude. I mean, what's your secret for staying positive? Are, are you a yoga guy or are you, do, you, do you read a lot of books? Like what's your, what, what uh, is it hardwired from your childhood? How do you, how do you, how do you think about that? Well, it's funny you say that. Actually,
0: my father um, was a, was a uh, quite a famous uh, yoga person in the United oh, States. Really? So I do actually have kind of a yoga background, but I'm not, um, I should put a, uh, put this out there from a flexibility point. I'm nothing to look at. <laughs> so I'm probably as flexible as you or anybody else. So I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy that can bend in a pretzel. But what I did like about it was the uh, the, you know, the meditation part, which just calms your mind and kind of like it's like every day you get up and you brush your teeth and get the plaque off your teeth you can do that for your brain every day and take 5 minutes and just clear up your brain and get all the thoughts out of it so that it's fresh again so you know that that that's definitely helped keep me um grounded and and when there's storms which there always are um going through the storms there are tricks of the trade and the probably the best I can give is there's a book that I would I mean I would highly, highly recommend this. Um, it's, the, it's, it's all about the Ernest Shackleton expedition. Um, it's well documented, there's actually 17 books on it. Um, I actually um, went to a seminar where they did this uh, class where they actually taught us what did he deploy in, in his expedition to ultimately survive while there was another expedition um, going on in the North where they all died or most of them died. And they had these two exhibitions going on at the same time. And they really talked about in an expedition, you know, what are the team building things you have to do when when, um, adversity hits you? So I'd taken this class, I loved it so much that I actually went to the the teacher of the class um, and said, can I be certified to teach this? And they said, well, yeah, who are you going to teach it to? I said, nobody, I just want to be certified to teach it because my own employees, I want to live by this code. Um, And it's a phenomenal, it's a true story, it's phenomenal. And, you know, it was in the very early days of exploration when back then it was more bigger than the Olympics, right? It was whoever explored the North pole and the South pole. Those were, those were big deals. And uh, that story has motivated me to this day. So I use so much of what I learned by kind of reading all of those 17 books and getting certified, which was a very long journey for me. Cause I don't like I'm a slow reader. Um, that, that really helped me, um, you know, prepare for when storms happen. And storms, like I said, I mean, any business is, you should expect storms to blow in regularly.
1: So, so what so would you take? If you can have coping, what was the biggest takeaway yeah, from the Shackleton story that you applied to teams under duress? Like what, what's the one thing that people can learn from that? God, I'm sure there's hundreds of is, things.
0: That's really hard, but I'll, I'll, there's literally hundreds. There's a, there's a card that you carry that has 10 of them on it. Um, I would say my favorite one is, um, be willing to take the big risks because in the Shackleton story, when they finally got to the end, they realized they were going to die on the mountain. It's like after this huge, like four-year journey of being out there in the middle of nowhere, they get to this mountaintop and it the the sun's setting and when the temperature drops, they'll 100% die. So, you know, they took the risk and jumped off the mountain like a toboggan, literally. And they could have hit rocks. They could have gone off. They didn't know where where it ended and they went down and they and they and they survived but you know there's not a lot of people would say well let's just figure out how to stand them out and they might have died you know you, you got to know when you have to take all it's all like um it's like a poker game with calculations that you have to make on every single move and what are the highest percentages that are going to give me a win and if you let those highest percentages be the decisions you make every time you should end up with a good result again you can have bad luck just like in a poker game you can You can go up against pocket aces and you know that might just obliterate you no matter what you do but but i think if you can always try and pick the highest percentages of success whatever they are and you might not like them sometimes but if you can stay in that zone you're just going to be more successful ultimately
1: well i think uh you have done that in spades tab what is the best way for people to reach out if they wanted to say hi do you do you have a linkedin profile they should check out or do you have you do twitter what's What's the best way for people to reach out if they want to? Yeah,
0: yeah. L- LinkedIn LinkedIn's perfect. I have a LinkedIn. Uh, and you have
1: a um, unique spelling of your first name, which we'll put into the show notes so people can get that. Teb. Um, <laughs> you've you've <laughs> been generous with your time and your insight and your hard fought lessons uh, of wisdom. I really appreciate you doing that today. So thanks for sharing.
0: Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and The Automatic Customer, creating a subscription business in any industry.